to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Andy, it's great to have you with us. Appreciate the chance to uh, share some of my thoughts about what's going on with the Belt and Road Initiative. To open this episode, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, your background, and your interest in China. Sure, happy to do that. So, I've been involved in China business investment and policy analysis for probably more than 20 years. So in terms of educational background, I did a master's in China studies at Johns Hopkins SAIS, uh, the School for Advanced International Studies. I also worked in private equity based in Hong Kong, making investments in media, healthcare, and education. And I was at the RAND Corporation for two years doing research into U.S.-China relations and have mostly a business background, uh, MBA from the Wharton School, as well as an undergraduate degree in accounting uh, from the University of Maryland. So in terms of my interest in China, it's always fascinated me both being ethnic Chinese, so a so-called ABC, American-born Chinese, uh, grew up in a very traditional Chinese household. So I've always had a personal interest, but in terms of the business opportunity, the profound changes uh, that it was easy to see even 20 years ago, uh, very, very exciting. So I feel both... uh, honored and privileged to have been uh, a witness and in some small way playing a part in uh, the transformation that we can see unfolding today. In a conversation that we had before we started to record, you said that you're very interested in Belt and Road Initiative. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about your interest in BRI? When did it start and also what aspects of the initiative are you especially interested in? Yeah, so I started following uh, Belt and Road uh, probably a little bit more than three years ago. So right after the announcement by Xi Jinping, I think, in Indonesia, uh, it seemed like this was going to be a very important initiative. I think one of the misperceptions uh, that still lingers amongst many foreign uh, analysts, whether it's in government, uh, in business, in the investment field, is a very easy dismissal of policy statements made by the Chinese government and the CPC. We look back to things like uh, Pudong uh, when that was announced. Uh, there was a lot of uh, skepticism and I think uh, outright derision that you know this was kind of a joke that uh, they would have these plans and we look at you know how successful that's been. So I think that um, when that was announced, it made a lot of sense to me, and I could see both the geopolitical rationale as well as 
the resources that China is able to marshal. So that seems something that's worth following. So the past three years, I've been following the developments of what was first called OBOR, One Belt, One Road, and now the new nomenclature is BRI, Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, fairly closely for the past three years, including uh, delivering a number of presentations around the world uh, on this, as well as conducting research uh, on BRI. Talking about geopolitics and resources, I remember that in one of your video interviews available online, you mentioned that we are now moving between two distinct stages in international trade and geopolitics. Could you introduce our listeners to this idea? Sure. So I think since at least post-World War II and perhaps even post-World War One, the center of gravity economically and politically has been the United States, uh, centered in Washington, the capital of the United States, of course. And when that's our starting point, so that was the center of the world, as it were, then because of the, I think, the cultural affinity of the United States with Western Europe, particularly the UK in particular, uh, as well as the threat from the Soviet Union, that the Trans-Pacific Alliance or alliances uh, were driving the engine that drove a lot of international relations. Uh, Now, clearly, the center of gravity, I think, has shifted where Beijing uh, is the more important uh, geopolitical center and a lot of uh, initiatives, a lot of energy uh, decisions being made here are affecting uh, not just China, but I think all around the world. So I think we're moving from a trans Atlantic-centered world to a, I wouldn't call it trans-Pacific per se, because of course everyone talks about the U.S. and China being the most important bilateral relationship in the world. But certainly with the the advent of the Trump administration, we can see uh, now it seems to be uh, the U.S. against everyone else, um, and terms like trade terrorism are thrown about, uh, as well as I think the Uh, the unfortunate emergence of a consensus in the United States that uh, China poses not just a trade or economic threat to the United States, but a full-spectrum existential threat that needs to be countered. So I think it raises some question about this trans-Pacific centered world, but perhaps now it's more of a Eurasian-driven world. Facilitating this kind of shift of focus in geopolitics from Trans-Pacific to Eurasian by running a project such as BRI cannot be easy. You mentioned yourself certain anxieties coming from the United States, Um, but many partners, uh, even the ones that are participating in BRI, are inclined to doubt the intentions of the Chinese government. So... How would you evaluate the way in which the BRI is introduced to governments, businesses, and the general public around the world? What are the channels used to communicate the BRI? And in your opinion, how effective have these attempts been so far? Well, I think there are multiple audiences that uh, the message around Belt and Road need to reach. So clearly, uh, there are there is an audience of government decision makers. So every country uh, on the Belt and Road and uh, BRI, I think, also needs to be 
uh, it, the audience, I think, needs to recognize that even though it's primarily uh, around the Eurasian landmass, including Africa, but now we can see South America, other parts of the world, also uh, even North America. Uh, I think there's an open invitation for any country that wants to be involved, including the United States, uh, to be involved. So I think it is a multifaceted uh communications effort. So I think first there's these one-to-one bilateral discussions, signing of MOUs, things like that. Uh, I think there is also broader outreach to different stakeholders, whether this is the corporate world, NGOs, uh, etc. And then finally, there's outreach to the general public. Because one thing I think we've seen over the past few years is that while certain countries at the national uh, government level is very welcoming and engaged with BRI initiatives, but it's also created public opinion backlash. Some of it uh, perhaps justified, some of it unjustified. And the ones that raise legitimate concerns about uh, income equality, uh, the way development is conducted uh, in a particular country, I think are harder to resolve through communication issues. But some of the misperceptions and the uh, a lack of complete understanding clearly are amenable to better messaging. And how do you think the communication with the general public can be facilitated? Well, I think given that this is such a massive and complex uh, initiative, because think about the scope of the audiences being covered. So if we start in China, and there also is the necessity of uh, effective communication to a domestic Chinese audience as well. Because one of the questions that I think is a perennial question, uh, political question, is allocation of resources. So, you know, questions have been raised about whether these resources are better used to focus on domestic development. So, then moving westward, so Central Asia, uh, West Asia, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Western Europe. The languages, the cultures, even the value systems are profoundly different. So we look at China, we could, uh, or we could say East Asia, perhaps more of a traditional Asian Confucian type mindset. As we move towards the Middle East, it's more of an Islamic mindset. Very, very different values, very, very different perceptions. And then finally, moving to Western Europe, uh, more of what we in the West would think of as the uh, overarching correct mindset. Um, so being able to deal with these very profound differences uh, in values, in worldviews, and then layered on top of that, the language cultural uh, differences, I think it's an enormous, enormous undertaking that we're only seeing uh, the very, very early stages of. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about media in this regard. You have been a commentator for CGTN, so China Global Television Network, commenting on startups, tech, and geopolitics for over three years now. How would you evaluate the role of the Chinese media in communicating the Belt and Road Initiative to the general public? What are the biggest challenges that Chinese media faces when trying to get the BRI story out? You mentioned, for instance, the challenge coming from huge diversity of languages and cultures involved in the Belt and Road Initiative. So do you think it's better to have a single message or 
have several messages tailored according to a specific listener, a specific recipient? Well, I think to effectively communicate such a complex and long-term undertaking, you have to have both. So there has to be core messaging, core talking points, but you also have to adapt them to the local culture and the local situation as well. Because when we look at uh, BRI, an important component of that are all the associated financial institutions with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank being one of the key ones. So if we look at the AIIB and the range of projects it is backing, so power plants in Pakistan, now uh, you know projects in India, Indonesia, etc., um, that the projects are different, the countries are different, the concerns are different. So I think that, uh, and again, I think this is in a way why the Chinese, I think the term that's used now that has negative connotations but is quite correct is uh, authoritarian mercantilism. And just like uh, 10, 20 years ago, even probably today, but to a lesser degree, the term communist, socialist was meant as an epithet, as an insult uh, to someone. So I think that in a way that this this term authoritarian mercantilism, meaning that it's a centrally controlled political system uh, with very clear national economic goals, uh, that this system is especially well suited to uh, initiate and manage and bring to a successful conclusion this type of uh, broad undertaking. And when it comes to your specific experience as a commentator on Chinese media, when you're on the show, who is your target audience? Um, who are you talking to from the screen? Well, so I think we first have to recognize that uh, CGTN is state media. And in this way, uh, and a lot of, I think, foreigners, Westerners don't appreciate this because we are brought up with this mindset that comes primarily from the UK that the press, the media is a co-equal, if not superior, branch of government that serves as a check on the other branches of government, hence the term the fourth estate. But in China, I think we need to recognize that the media is actually an arm of government. And the way I describe it uh, to Americans or people familiar with uh, American the American corporate structure is it's maybe a little bit more like the corporate communications arm of like a Walmart or an Apple. And the idea is to help outside stakeholders understand what the company is doing. So the role of CGTN then is to explain in a clear, balanced way, um, in ideally using a frame of reference that the target audience can understand uh, what really is happening in China, and through that hopefully counter some of these misperceptions. You know, an easy misperception that many people that only read uh, things like CNN or the New York Times, and of course they've improved in the past couple of years, but that China is this authoritarian state run by thugs where people have no freedom, uh, they're all automatons uh, living these impoverished lives. And you know anyone that even spends a day or two in Beijing or Shanghai sees that this is clearly not the case. And I think in this way, 
the foreign media does a disservice to its uh, readers, uh, watchers, whatever, and that the role of CGTN is, I think, to provide an alternative view to that and let the audience decide for themselves, uh, you know, what they feel is the most appropriate view. In this regard, you mentioned the connection between Chinese media and Chinese government. And this quality can be a little bit problematic. It can affect the way that the message put forward by Chinese media is received abroad, especially especially in the West. So is there a way for Chinese media to mitigate that? And coming back to the previous question, do you think that there is or there could be a single universal message, a single universal channel, or should um, the Belt and Road Initiative message coming from Chinese media be tailored to specific culture or go through different channels? Well, I think, again, you have to have both, right? So, again, to use a corporate example, uh, companies that excel in branding and messaging, so look at Apple, globally, the core message is the same, but they do have some local adaptations. Another example, again, to use an American corporate example, look at a company like McDonald's or Pizza Hut. The core elements of the brand are always the same, but there's a lot more localization. So I think that this is the approach that uh, I think the Chinese government has to take and, in fact, is taking. And I think, again, one of the strengths of both the party and the government is their ability uh, to learn from but not slavishly follow any particular model. So, for example, uh, when I was at RAND, I hosted a number of Chinese delegations looking to learn about everything from how think tanks work, how other parts, how the machinery of society, of politics works. But what really impressed me, though, was that these delegations had also been to Germany, to Mexico, uh, to places that we probably, as, as Americans, would not spend a lot of time thinking about. And in the U.S., for example, people, these bi-coastal elites, dismiss flyover country uh, in the Midwest, and we can see the danger of doing that, right? That's how you get a Donald Trump. But similarly, that there are valuable lessons to be learned from other countries around the world, the Hungaries, the Polands, right? And that I think the Chinese government has been very systematic at gathering both positive examples as well as negative examples and then synthesizing it and adapting it uh, to Chinese circumstances. I think a very important example of this is when we look at the 19th Party Congress. One of the themes, again, I think is starting to become recognized but hasn't gotten enough attention, I think, is this idea of the signification of Marxism. And again, Americans hear this and like, Marxism, bad. And, and that's the level of thought that goes into it. But this is something that I think China's taking very, very seriously and will have global implications. Thank you for all the great points. Uh, maybe to wrap it up with a practical question for our listeners. If I'm a consumer of media that doesn't want to go into deep level research, but is genuinely interested in learning more about BRI, how would you advise me to evaluate whether what I read and listen to 
is fairly unbiased and reliable. I think that's a frankly almost impossible because if you only are looking for a little bit of background information, skimming the headlines is enough. But if it's something that matters to you, either from an investment perspective, uh, a business perspective, meaning you're deciding, do you want to sell, buy from, somehow be involved in commercial transactions other than investment with something Belt and Road related, or even personally, uh, you really have to do your homework. I mean, for anything, right? Whether you're buying a car, buying a house, choosing a husband or wife. You just can't do it superficially. If it really matters to you, you really have to take the time to do your homework. Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, B E N T U R E S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. <laughs>